0: Welcome to the PZNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, Pediatric Nurse Practitioner and Clinical Assistant Professor at the Catholic University of America. In the new year, we often make resolutions for ourselves. Resolutions for things we wanna change, resolutions for the ways we wanna become better, or resolutions to stop bad habits. And I have your first pediatric-focused resolution of 2023 stop prescribing Benadryl. Now, this may come as a big shock to many of you who recommend Benadryl daily for a variety of indications, but evidence concerning adverse events and newer, better drugs means that the routine use of diphenhydramine should go the way of 2022, in the past. Today, we're going to talk about the issues surrounding diphenhydramine and the alternatives that should join your list of prescribing resolutions in 2023. Diphenhydramine, known commonly under the brand name Benadryl, is a first-generation H1 antihistamine. It works as an inverse agonist at the H1 receptor, thereby blocking histamine to reduce allergic symptoms. It's a potent anticholinergic, meaning that it blocks acetylcholine and therefore inhibits the parasympathetic nervous system, which functions to rest and digest. The anticholinergic side effects of the drug include blurry vision, urinary retention, dry mouth, and constipation. More commonly remembered with the rhyme, can't see, can't pee, can't spit, can't... Well, you know how the rest of it goes. Because of the array of effects that occur when taking the drug, the uses extend beyond just the antihistamine attack on allergic reactions listen to the following scenarios where, for better or worse, diphenhydramine is commonly prescribed in pediatrics. Then consider whether you've prescribed it for any of these off-label uses and whether or not it was appropriate. How about for infants and children with congestion caused by upper respiratory infections to dry up the mucous membranes? For the sniffling, sneezing, coughing, aching fever so you can get some sleep combination cold and cough medicines, for eczema, hives, bug bites, contact dermatitis, or pityriasis rosea to control the itch by putting the child to sleep, for infants and toddlers getting ready for a long trip so they don't kick the seat in front of you on the airplane for four hours, in acute care for anxiolysis used alone or in combination with other drugs to mellow children out prior to procedures. For treatment of adverse reactions to compazine in children getting a migraine cocktail. For maintenance of seasonal allergic rhinitis. Or for management of anaphylaxis, after the epi, of course. Sounds like the Swiss Army knife of drugs, right? Wrong. When we prescribe a drug for outpatient use, it means that the medication is now in the home. And therefore, children have accidental exposures, either from the caregiver's error or unsupervised intentional or unintentional ingestion of the drug. And those anticholinergic side effects can be pretty wicked, particularly when taken at super therapeutic doses. Palmer et al.'s 2022 article summarizing adverse events in an over-the-counter medication surveillance program found diphenhydramine adverse events culpable in over 2,000 cases between 2008 to 2015. Wang et al. in 2022 noted that this data also showed a significant increase in the number of these cases that required healthcare evaluation, jumping from 32% to 43%, which was statistically significant. Most of the cases involved children between two and four years of age, Remember that this is a common age of unintentional ingestions due to their curiosity and development. But don't forget misuse that's commonly seen in adolescents, whether related to a mental health problem or those in search of recreational drug use, like the infamous TikTok Benadryl challenge, which encouraged viewers to take diphenhydramine at nearly toxic doses, like upwards of 12 times the recommended adult dose, in order to produce hallucinations. The most common adverse effects of diphenhydramine toxicity were tachycardia, hallucinations, somnolence, agitation, and mydriasis, with seizure and death also rarely noted. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly don't want my patients exposed to such harms. But it seems like such a useful drug, right? How do you tackle that laundry list of uses? Well, here's an idea. Use evidence-based and common-sense alternatives because all of those uses aren't exactly evidence-based and some are downright contraindicated. Let's go through that list of on and off-label uses again, and this time think of the best evidence-based practice recommendations in children. For congestion caused by upper respiratory infections, instead of trying to dry up the mucous membranes, which can lead to sinusitis and worsening symptoms, let's talk with parents about supportive care for an extra two minutes. Encourage the use of a nasal aspirator, because let's be honest, no one outside of pediatric nurses can actually get anything out with a bulb. And make sure the parents are using plenty of saline. For older children, encourage steam showers or warm baths before bed to open up the nasal passages and allow them to drain. For combination cold and cough medicines, encourage the use of single drug products, such as Tylenol or ibuprofen, for fever or pain. When cough medication or additional comfort is needed, encourage honey in children over 12 months or anything sugary really, hot chocolate, apple cider, apple juice, just to coat the throat with a syrupy, sugary consistency and skip the cough and cold medicine altogether. Wait, 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 wait. you mean no cough or cold medicines? What about the children over four like the back of the box says? Well, let's review the history of what happened with cough and cold medicines in the early 2000s. In 2008, the Food and Drug Administration recommended that over-the-counter cough and cold medications not be used in children under age 2 due to concerns of safety and efficacy. And the drug manufacturers agreed and complied. They changed their recommended use for children age 4 and older. But even after this, there were still 8,000 adverse events and 180 deaths, 40 of which were attributed to cough and cold medications, and 24 of them in children under age two. So that tells us that the labeling doesn't help keep kids safe. And what's more, an old but great study by Paul et al in 2004 showed that both children with URIs and their parents had no improvement in their sleep quality with the use of dextromethorphan or diphenhydramine for symptomatic relief of colds when compared with placebo. (laughs) What's the take home here? Literally a sugar pill will help your kid and therefore you sleep just as much as a drug with potent anticholinergic side effects. For all those itchy rashes in need of systemic control, Cetirizine is a fast-acting, second-generation antihistamine approved for the use of urticaria in children over 6 months of age. One benefit of the second-generation antihistamines is that it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier as readily and therefore doesn't cause as much sedation. Its onset is similar within about 15 to 30 minutes, but the duration is 24 hours, making both pediatric dosing and symptom control much better. For those long car or plane trips, sedation using diphenhydramine, chloral hydrate, or benzodiazepines is not recommended due to the risk of paradoxical reactions, respiratory depression, and potential for adverse events. So how are you going to survive that eight-hour drive to your in-law's house? Do what I did and ignore the AAP recommendations for screen time, just for a couple of days. Then split up the trip and make sure to book a hotel with a swimming pool to get out all of the gross motor play for the overnight pit stop. Sure, eight hours of screen time is unadvisable on the regular, and I had to listen to Toy Story and The Lion King on repeat, but we had a drug-free backseat for the whole vacation. I've seen Benadryl used alone or in combination with other drugs to induce pre-procedure anxiolysis in children. Anxiolysis is a drug-induced state of consciousness that would result in minimal sedation, during which cognitive function and coordination might be slightly impaired, but the patient should respond normally to verbal commands at an age-appropriate or baseline orientation, while ventilation is maintained without any kind of intervention and cardiovascular function is unaffected. Remember that because sedation exists on a continuum, the use of multiple drugs is less predictable and therefore inherently pushes the classification to moderate sedation, which has implications for needing a formal procedural sedation history and physical exam, as well as additional resources for the procedure itself due to the potential alterations in the child's respiratory status. Those are things like nursing staff, monitoring, airway supplies, safety supplies, etc. Essentially, it's a completely additional workflow procedure in and of itself. For non-painful procedures, pediatric patients often need anxiolysis alone without additional pain control. And benzodiazepines such as midazolam with concomitant emotional and physical support often offered by a parent or child life are often effective for most pediatric patients. Diphenhydramine or other drugs that could cause alterations in consciousness should not be used within two hours of anxiolytic drugs. Diphenhydramine is commonly used as part of the migraine cocktail in pediatric headache. It's useful for the treatment of extrapyramidal side effects that occur secondary to administration of dopamine receptor agonists, or a DRA, like compazine, which can occur in pediatric patients anywhere from 5 to 39% of the time. And there's certainly evidence to support giving the medication for the treatment of extrapyramidal side effects, but this should only be when the side effects actually appear rather than as a preventative medication. Because studies in pediatric patients show that treatment with diphenhydramine and a DRA increased the odds of a return visit to the ED by 27% when compared with the DRA treatment alone. Now, for those of you who live in wonderful states like mine with an allergy season that lasts nine or 10 months of the year, let's go back to the guidelines for the treatment of seasonal allergic rhinitis. But first, I want you to remember that allergic reactions are immune-mediated responses to an allergen in the person's environment to which they have been exposed. So inherently, that means that infants with runny nose or congestion cannot have allergies. They most likely have colds or maybe even reflux causing nasal congestion. Indoor allergies can begin as young as two years of age, while outdoor allergies typically start to appear around three or four at the earliest. First-line treatments for allergic rhinitis with persistent symptoms is intranasal corticosteroid sprays. They are by far the most effective treatment, but the method of delivery can sometimes be less desirable with children, or take days or weeks to note a full effect. That's why using a second-generation antihistamine like cetirizine, loratidine, fexofenadine, or levocetirizine as an adjunct is a great tool. Remember that not all second-generation antihistamines are created equal. There's a significant difference in how each individual may respond to the medication. For example, some people don't respond well to loratidine. And there's a difference in the cost to the patient. So you should work together with families to come up with an allergy plan that works for them. What about allergic reactions and anaphylaxis? Don't forget, antihistamines are often included as adjunctive therapy for cutaneous signs and symptoms associated with anaphylaxis, but should not be administered before or in place of epinephrine. And with regard to biphasic reactions the Joint Task Force for Practice Parameters for Allergy and Immunology 2020 update noted that, quote, although we suggest against the use of antihistamines or glucocorticoids as an intervention specifically to prevent biphasic anaphylaxis, these may be considered for the secondary treatment of anaphylaxis, end quote. In short, you can use antihistamines, but don't count on them to prevent biphasic reactions you should still manage those with epinephrine and observation. They go on to note that compared with older first-generation H1 antihistamines, second-generation H1 antihistamines have a longer duration of action, less anticholinergic effects, and less sedation, yet similar onset of action, therefore making them preferable drugs. As you ring in the new year, maybe you want to eat healthier, take the stairs, or make time for self-care this year. Unfortunately, 43% of resolutions fail by February and we're back to our old ways of elevator indulging and drinking our self-care and milkshakes. But this resolution to stop prescribing Benadryl is an easy one and one that I hope you'll keep for your entire career, because now you have both the evidence and alternatives to help you make decisions for your patients that will help keep them safe so they can enjoy their new holiday toys without the worry of side effects or sedation. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to The Peds NP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. Follow me on Instagram at the NP Podcast. Email me at thepedsnp@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Tell your friends about your favorite episode by texting a link to your favorite streaming platform or share the episodes page of www.thepedsnp.com where you can also read show notes and see references. There's no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the Peds NP. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You can make a resolution that matters to kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.